Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Something Inventive, from Terminator to Zero. I share highlights from speakers and topics that stood out for me at a recent WXG conference in Guildford, and Al talks about getting more sleep and why people are better than robots. Tell me about the sleep thing you went to, Al. Well, it was it wasn't uh, it was a kind of a um, little science fair for kids that I went to in Bradford on Avon where I live, and um, part of that they had this sort of sleep expert talking about um, quality of sleep and how that's very important. You know, people are always connected and people are checking their devices late at night, um, and sometimes you know in the night through the night of um, ch- checking Twitter and, and Facebook and all these sort of things, and he was just saying that's particularly bad for you. And that sleep is actually the number one thing you should focus on for, you know, mental well-being and, and healthy, being healthy. And just gave some examples of, of how people, you know, had improved by not looking at devices. And then following that weirdly on the TV, there was a documentary about kids and sleep as well. And saying it's kind of like, you know, a modern phenomenon. It could severely inhibit your, uh, your progress in, in life by not having enough sleep. Yeah. And there's uh, lots of uh, examples of kids who would be on... Um, multiple devices late into the night and would sometimes get four hours sleep because <gasps> the kids it, yeah oh, but, but not only that you know their brains sort of always switched on with like updates and messages and games and stuff and um of course through the day they're not able to learn um and pick things up and remember and recall things mm. um you know and i don't it's i don't think it's something you can train yourself to really uh manage i think it's that's just how humans are i think you, you just need sleep um, people do need different amounts of sleep that's true but if you're not getting enough for you then very quickly your sort of faculties will <laughs> sort of evaporate a little bit so um yeah they had this experiment with some kids who were, who were like that and they mm. weren't doing at school before sleep and uh they took away their devices um and they just did some very basic cognitive tests remembering and and things like maths and stuff and they all did just way better after this kind of, I think it was like a couple of weeks of uh, no devices before bed. Right, so they're still allowed to use devices, but there was a, a sort of a zone around going to sleep where they'd have a, a calm down. Yeah, they say uh, an hour before sleep, you shouldn't be looking yeah. at anything with a screen, which includes a TV. Darn it. Soon it'll probably be a fridge or a toaster, because that'll have a screen on. <laughs> so you can't, you know, you can't have a late, you know, late night bowl of cereal without looking at it the fridge screen but anyway how much sleep do you get out not enough <laughs> and i can tell you that definitively i particularly after this uh, after this seminar where i was like yeah i do fit into some of those categories i need to get more and he was saying if there was a drug that you could take for free that improved every part of your well-being that you could self-administer and was legal would you take it and of course you'd be like well yeah and he goes well that is what sleep is so that's a pretty good argument for me. <laughs> I've always been reasonably good at sleep, but uh, as I get older, I found that I've been waking up earlier with light creeping under the... Uh, we got blackout blinds, but light creeping under. And uh, I don't know if I should say this on the podcast, but I've been wearing those eye mask things. Okay. Just because literally I might look like a fool, but it does black out completely the the light. And I've been finding I have much more uninterrupted sleep. I mean, it's not bad anyway, but... I sleep until I, I wake, uh, need to wake up at seven o'clock. So, I, 
generally have between seven to eight hours of sleep. Have you gone the whole hog of sitting in a sort of airline seat that doesn't recline as well? No, or? no. Oh. No, or, or getting the atmospheric sounds of sort of people walking up and down the aisles or, or chatting. No, I haven't gone, gone for that yet. No, oh. it, I mean, you get used to it. It's one of those things that I couldn't stand at first having it on my face because it's horrible. Um, but you get used to it and actually it makes such a difference. Uh, I think that's just age. I don't know what it is to do with age, but something about it is just making it uh, slightly more difficult to sleep. Um, but it's interesting to hear about technology as well because I, I read before I go to bed on my iPhone. Ah, um, so that's, a, that's a classic error. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah. what I found has helped, actually, I mean, I think Apple has put some things, uh, some colour changing in um, yeah. on the phone, so to remove yes. blue light or something like that. That's but true, yes. But what I've found that really helps is to not read in complete darkness, is to actually have some sort of background, subtle light to help reduce the contrast between this very bright screen and a very mm. dark backdrop. Mm. Have a TV on in the background. Yeah. <laughs> just, just a small light. And that's made a huge difference, actually, to the sort of very tired feeling your eyes get. Whether that yeah. still impacts on sleep, I don't know. But um, it, I, certainly uh, it's much better. It certainly helps. And that blue light thing that they put onto Apple devices and possibly other devices as well, I'm not sure, um, does help because it's that light that tells your eyes that it's time to be awake. And just before going to sleep, it gets completely confused. Yeah. And um, he's had some various graphs about like sleep patterns and stuff. And yeah, you know, it, it has a big impact. Yeah. yeah, that's what I heard. I think that there's people who disagree with that, but um, what, I don't think it can do any harm, certainly trying that out, considering, you know, you're still using the device. You might as well try and limit some of the light from it. So what have you taken forward then, Al, on this um, digital adventure into sleep? Um, that I'm trying not to use my uh, iPhone before bed. Mm. I haven't been massively successful yet, but it's a start. <laughs> it is hard because it's um it, it's something that we do now it's part of our lives isn't it yeah it's tough to get away from that mm. oh interesting okay well um i went to a conference in guildford now uh you you were unable to come so i'm going to give you a bit of a rundown uh, to let you know what went on um I, I actually went, I'd never been to it before, uh, but it sounded interesting. And I went along thinking it was a bit of a, a technical conference and you're going to have a lot of people there talking about Node.js and JavaScript frameworks and all that sort of stuff, stuff <laughs> that you actually deal with uh, or would deal with more than I would. Um, but it wasn't at all. It was much more about people and humanity and usability. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And in fact, our main topic is going to be about that. So I won't ruin anything right now. But it's a very good conference, a lot of um, wide-ranging speakers. Um, I'm also going to mention these things called podverts. In a flash of inspiration when we were creating our newsletter that went out at the beginning of last month, we wondered whether it would be nice to invite people who read the newsletter to get a free advert on this podcast, just to find out really what sort of product services are out there, who's listening to this podcast, and give a bit of something back. So I asked everyone just to send a tweetable comment out on Twitter, mentioning at Rather Inventive and the hashtag Podvert. And I've got a couple back in, so we're going to read those out at the end as well. So listen out if that's one of yours that uh, you sent in. Before we move on to the main topic, though, I'm just going to talk about the Be Sociable book. It's an easy-to-follow social media tips and strategy book uh, to help you get noticed by the right people and for the right reasons. It's a book written by Helen Caldercutt and, uh, and I. Helen Caldercutt is a, a social media trainer based in Worcester. Um, while we're working together, there are a lot of um, websites, books, videos, how-tos, and discussion and argument around social media. 
but um, it was difficult to wade through and, and not many of them were concise and easy to read and some were pretty awful. So we decided to write a book and hopefully give our spin on it and, and um, create something which is easy to consume and, and simple to follow. So some example tips are uh, like getting a recognisable profile name, talking to Twitter as a person, or even stalking your customers on LinkedIn. I like that one particularly. So if you want to get the um, full version, it's available on Mac, iPhone, iPad for $9.99 on the iBook store. If you just search for Be Sociable Ben on Google, you'll find it there or it's on our website. Just look for the social book in the menu. Or if you want a free copy, uh, you just go to our website, ratherinventive.com, scroll down to the bottom and you'll see a um, sign up for our newsletter uh, entitled Grab a Free Copy of Our Social Media Strategy Book. Just pop your email in there, subscribe, and within a few minutes you should get an email back with a link to a PDF copy. It's the full book, there is no difference. It's not quite as spangly as the iBooks version, but it's a PDF, it's completely DRM free, so copy it around and make sure lots of people see it. Um, so you just need to go to our website, ratherinventive.com, scroll down to the bottom and fill out your email. Hit subscribe and you'll get a copy of the book in your email box straight away. Yeah, go and do that. I'd like to see lots of downloads and um, make sure you tell your friends about that too. Okay, moving on. So on to the main topic of the WXG conference. Now, this was back in uh, the 23rd of March and it's a conference in Guildford. As I said before, I didn't know much about it. So I went there thinking it was going to be quite technical, but it wasn't actually at all. It was really nice. Very friendly conference, great food. So if anyone fancies going, going there again, it's got really good food. So what I'm going to do, Al, because you weren't able to come, is I'm just going to give you my rundown on what I think is interesting. Hopefully everyone else is going to find that interesting too. And if I get around to it, I've actually got a lot more notes and I'm going to make a um, blog post about it, sort of highlighting each of the main points and what I think is worth uh, people looking at over the next uh, uh, couple of months and seeing if they can implement some of that in their marketing. So the first person I saw, and I actually was there a little bit late, so I apologise to Tash Walker from a company called The Mix. I, I wasn't quite sure what I was walking in for first when, when I sat down. They actually had some eye masks on, my, on the seat. and I wonder what that was for. Um, I thought I might keep that for later. But what she was talking about is human behaviour. And that's what her company focuses on. And there's a couple of points here that I think were quite relevant. One is that there's just too much choice in the world. And that can actually cause us significant problems. Um, now, I'm probably going to butcher the example she gave, but essentially, uh, they tried an experiment with various products in a supermarket. And they found that you could have lots of choice and that uh, people might think that that's a good thing. But actually, when they reduced down the aisle for one particular type of product and just had a selection of, say, five, they actually found the conversion increased by something like... 20-30%, I may have the numbers wrong, but they actually found that pe more people bought products when you reduce the amounts um, that were available. Um, and I, I think this is just down to choice anxiety, really, because there are so many choices available that if we can't make a, a good choice or we don't think we're going to make the right choice, actually, we might not make any choice and basically defer it to another time. That's not a good thing for shops to have happen. Uh, and this is a particular bugbear of mine. I've done a, a small talk on choice as well. I think the example I used was cheese and toothpaste on the Waitrose website. But equally, there's, there's so many places where we go and we're bombarded with choice. Um, and it makes it, for me anyway, very difficult to, to make a decision. 
uh, and I found some of the best places actually help you make that decision by trying to either funnel you down and get you to make big choices first and then then helping you make the smaller choices or just not giving you a huge choice to begin with. And uh, a familiar example I remember is a, an Indian, it's a vegetarian Indian restaurant in Bristol where they uh, would only have two set times for eating. I think that was 7pm and 9pm. And there are only two main dishes that you could eat. You had a few uh, sides and other drinks you could buy, but it made the choice a lot easier when you're booking through to when you're um, eating and paying for everything. And I, I really like that. Um, having a look more recently, I think their menu has expanded and changed, but that focus to keep it simple and make it easy for them as a business and also easy as a consumer is something I, I, I think is a really good idea. People do think that choice is good, isn't it? And they say we want to give our customers as much choice as possible. Mm -hmm. but, but actually, yes, it can be bewildering. And for me, anyway, I'm one of these analytical kind of comparison. I don't know what personality type that makes me, but I need to compare everything. And, it's, and it is when I see a lot of choice on, on a product, I'm like, I, for example, right now I'm trying to buy another printer. And it is it's quite exhausting because I need to be sure I'm getting the right one. And so I have to cross check all of the information for all of the different printers. And I'm whittling it down as we speak. But um, yeah, it's tough. And I've got a, I'm still left with like four or five models. And I'm trying to discern which one out of those is the right one. Uh, also, there's availability too. I need to get one that is still available. But um, it's it's a lot of work <laughs> I, for me. That's because that's what I'm like. Not everyone is like that they all will often see the first thing and they like it and they buy it but um yeah so lots of choice especially with printers there's so many different printer models mm -hmm. and just one number and you think well what's the difference and they have to kind of check it takes a lot of time and uh, yeah like you say i may end up just going oh this is too much trouble <laughs> i'm not going to buy one because there's just too many you know if a if a, if a computer if a brand came out that just sold two different types of printer i would probably buy one of them because that, that way, I it just reduces the amount of time I have to spend checking about them. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, um, uh, we've got a podvert coming up from a company who, who might be able to help you out. Oh, I know, um, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, I had that um, just the other day when I was choosing some knives, oddly enough. Um, I, I wanted a really good, sharp knife. And I thought, well, I, I, I don't want to cheap out. I don't want to get a cheap knife. I want a, I want a decent knife because I use it all the time. I love cooking and I, I want something, a useful tool for that. And I went into our local kitchen cook shop and um, they had a whole wall. In fact, they had two walls of knives. One of them was under a glass cabinet locked like jewellery and the other was, you know, free-for-all. And... Uh, but there was an assistant there. There was someone just hanging around. How can I help? Uh, yeah, I want a knife. Um, and then, so what are you looking to spend? Or, or, or what sort of knife? What's it for? And so I, that helped narrow things down a little bit. And I ended up buying um, <laughs> a knife for £60. Wow. Well, yeah, I know, £60 for a knife. But it's, a, if you don't mind me saying, a bloody good knife. Um, <laughs> it's a cut above the rest for sure. Yeah, but I mean, I've bought many <laughs> knives in my past. Um, and they all end up being pretty rubbish. Um, they, they either blunt very easily or they break. You know, you tend to get the, the join between whatever the metal is and the, the, the handle breaks. And I, I, I can't be doing with that. And, you know, you're spending 10 quid each time whenever you're buying a knife. Why not have one that is that will last for... Are you, are you cutting logs with these knives? Or... All right. Just you, you know how frustrating it is when you're cutting a tomato and it doesn't cut properly because your knife is blunt? No, it's very frustrating. And, you know, I, I, I guess it's, it's easier to do that as you get older, maybe have a bit more uh, money to spend on things. But 
if someone can help you choose something that, regardless of the cost, is at least a choice, they can help you make a choice, then I think that is more helpful than leaving me there. Because if I was between all of these knives, I'd just probably go for the cheap one again. Mm. I, I can't, you know, I think, well, I can't lose by doing this. It's like 10 quid. I can buy a knife and I'll buy an- keep buying another one. But actually, mm. from my point of view, because it's something I use on a daily basis and it makes my life easier, I want something that is, is better. So like you, I'm quite analytical. And to have someone who you trust, um, rightly or wrongly, help make that decision with you is really helpful. Mm. I think it reduces buyer's remorse as well. If you've had a personal recommendation for something, you you can just kind of put it to bed and go like, right, well, that's what I bought. That was the decision. Boom, done. You know, there's no kind of self-doubt, maybe. Yeah, and that's that's the other thing, you know, you and I are analytical because we don't want to make the wrong decision. Some people don't care about that, will make the wrong decision, then regret that they've made that decision. I don't want to regret it. So I'm thinking ahead to my my forthcoming regret of that product. Mm. So far I'm not. I'll tell you in a lifetime when it breaks. So another thing she talked about was focus on utility, not content. Um, and I think we focus on that when developing websites, that we want websites to be useful and helpful to people the design should facilitate that the design and the content should be what helps provide that information it shouldn't be there for the sake of it so i think what she was talking about is when marketers are putting out stuff online don't put out stuff don't just put out things you think look good or are quirky ideally you want to focus on things that will be useful to people Mm sort of content I think is useful to people we could put out a lot of um, quite funny uh, cat pictures or things like that that might grab attention but actually not useful in the long term so uh, broadly speaking I do agree with that because it's something that we try and weave into the websites that we build or any advice that we provide Um, although it's quite nice to have some whimsy and fun in the design so what do you think of that Al utility not content does that make sense to you well when I first read it I was a bit confused because we were always saying that you should really focus on the content. Content is important. But I think in, in this context, what maybe we're saying is focus on utility rather than gimmicks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a clearer definition, I think. Mm. Um, and so, yes, maybe you know, the site doesn't need to sort of load things in via animations from the left and the right to kind of get your attention because actually it's probably distracting your attention, mm-hmm. the usefulness <laughs> potentially. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that does make sense. If you just change that word to sort of gimmick or something like that. So so in that sense, I mean, it it doesn't matter whether we're talking about imagery, video, text or animation. It's making sure that it's there for a purpose. So Mm. um, to perhaps make sure you do notice it, um, to hint on the direction you should scroll, to -hmm. show that you that there might be more information if you were to slide your finger across the page. I mean, that's Mm. that's useful. Um, mm. I think you're writing content. Actually, she did go on to say that I, I bet there's going to be at least one presenter who will say content is king in, um, in the future, further presentations, which there was, um, and everyone mm. played on that. I think generally from a marketing point of view, content can be king and producing lots of good, interesting, relevant stuff um, online can be useful um, if it's useful. I think that's what she's saying. Try and whenever we're creating anything to make it um, useful, interesting, and provide utility, not just filler mm. or gimmicks. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so, mm. so that's good. I, I missed some of the presentation, but there are the bits I heard, and uh, I think it's brilliant. So that was Tash, uh, Tash Walker from The Mix. Um, again, I'm going to put links to most, uh, more content that I'm going to provide now and a few other things on a blog post when I get around to writing it. 
Um, next up was uh, Steve Bartlett from a company called Social Chain. Um, so there's a couple of things that he did here. What, basically, he started off recruiting lots of moderately well-known people on Twitter and um, Facebook, people with a social, um, social followers. And uh, essentially started an advertising business where brands, uh, big brands, can pay him to um, marshal his followers to deliver a message. So what he can do is within moments really get something trending on Twitter by getting enough people talking about it at once and then getting their followers to talk about it and have conversations about things. It's quite interesting actually, a lot of what he, um, he came up with and what, a lot of what he does and I've got a lot more things that I'll post in a blog article. But a couple of things that we did which were quite fun. One is we actually tried to achieve trending on Twitter while we are at the conference. So he asked everyone to um, tweet um, the hashtag WXG5 or something like that is awesome. And we did. We got enough. We, got, we were trending on Twitter for at least a couple of minutes. So it just shows if you can get enough people at, in a short period of time to do it, then that's some momentum. And then you just need to keep that going for a period of time. And that's basically what their, their company does. Um, some of the other things he talked about are um, multiple messaging from different sources can improve your chance of conversion. So um, I think what he's saying there is not only having one message coming from one person on Twitter, but getting that from multiple people and also other sources um, like through an email, through um, a post so having lots of different sources of information coming at you with a very similar message or the same coherent message can actually improve the chance that people will move to convert whatever it is you want them to do, if that makes sense. So does, are you saying he pays other people to post messages on Twitter? Or yes. this is all happens? Oh, right. It's not, yeah. it's not an organic thing. You know, you, you, you've got uh, millions of followers, you do really well, um, you live the lifestyle. So what he'll do is he'll recruit you and he'll pay you a certain amount of money to post messages, which are sponsors, sponsorships. They have to, they have to say that this is an advert and, or a promotional item in some way. Um, but because they have a certain amount of followers on YouTube, Twitter or whatever the social platform is, then um, a percentage of those people will then go through and take action on whatever it is they want them to do. And it may not even mm. necessarily be something that is an action. It could just be a thought and getting people to start thinking about something or pushing um, something in a certain direction. Actually, one of the guys I'm going to mention later, um, uh, he's the creative director at Head. Uh, they did that with a, a lot of skiers. So they, they basically gave their new pro skis out to a lot of the people that they sponsor and didn't say anything, but just gave them the skis, knowing that these people are quite active on social media. And so then they get various things coming back in, like um, uh, an unboxing of the skis, reviews of the skis, people showing how they work, whether they like talking about whether they like them or not. They really try to be hands off and said, you know, mm. say what you like or don't say anything, but here's some skis. Mm. Um, and what Steve Bartlett's doing is is basically a very similar thing, but on a, a mm. more general scale for lots of different brands. Quite interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. And then something else he said, which I think is actually quite important, is to make people feel something, whether it's positive or negative. So if you can make people react, you're going to get much more chance that your message is going to have some effect, whether they like it or not. Um, now, I think some people do take this to the extreme where they'll post a comment they know is going to get people's people going, um, uh -huh. either in support or in hate for that message. So I think it can be used 
uh, in the wrong way. But I do agree that if you're going to put a message out there, you really want people to react to it. And I think that's, that comes back to something else I have a strong feeling for, and it's to be opinionated, to, to have your opinion. Uh, hopefully it's a well-rounded, educated opinion, but an opinion nonetheless, and to actually put your stake in the ground. What do you think of that? There's certainly enough negativity in the world, isn't there? I don't think adding adding negative messages is something I would do. But I'd certainly getting um, positive messages and uh, making people want to share things, then yeah, yes. Yeah, but he was just saying, really, you don't want people not to react because then it's dead in the water. You know, whatever you say is going to be, well, um, what's, the, what's the saying? Meh, M-E-H. It's yeah. like, or so what? And that, that yeah. is the wrong thing. You, you want people to either be positive or go, no, I disagree with you, actually. And it doesn't need to be negative as in hate, but it can be, mm. no, I think you're wrong and here's why. And I think okay. that, is, that is just as good a reaction as someone saying, yes, I think you're right. Uh, I'm with you on that. Mm. I mean, you do see a lot of Twitter things just not really thought out very much and it's not really even that interesting and you do have that well okay great good for you okay next <laughs> sort of I think what you're talking about is when people go into these hate storms on Twitter and there's a they there's a lot of people will start adding their um, opinions into you know someone's done something wrong on Twitter and that gets out and everyone's sharing and you know there's lots of supporters and lots of detractors of it there's a great book which I listened to um, by Ron Johnson I can't remember the name of it, but I'll put the link in the show notes. And it's it's something like, so you've been shamed on Twitter mm, or social media? Thing. And yeah. it's really good. It's really yeah, he, good. And he, he followed a couple of people who basically their whole life had imploded because of a tweet, basically, more or less. Yeah. And the storm that follows, there was a couple of people, you know, not, not celebrities, just, reg, I guess, regular people who just tweeted something. And taking the wrong context because you don't get emotion with tweets. And before you know it, people just love to jump on, you know, the, the bandwagon almost and, and flame people down for yes. what they think they meant. And um, yeah, it's it's quite scary, really, that that could happen, isn't it? It is. And it's horrible what people go through. Uh, and, and, you know, the people piling in, it's just a moment for them and it's it's been and gone. The people it affects, it's horrible. And and there's very few people that probably deserve, in quotes, what, what they're getting. Mm. Um, I, I highly recommend reading or listening to it. It's a very good book. I listen to it on Audible, and it takes a while to get used to Ron Johnson's voice. But once you do, it's it's brilliant. It's a very good book, and I highly recommend listening to it. I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's something like, So You've Been Publicly Shamed on Twitter. Right, the next up was Connor Ward. Uh, I think he works for another company, but his Twitter handle's at UXMuch. And he basically has what he calls a user testing lab. He's quite an interesting chap, and I think his was one of the most interesting presentations. Um, but I'm just going to mention a little bit about it now. He was talking about user testing. And I think one of the key things for us from a website's point of view, if you are watching someone uh, and asking them what they think about the website, is actually not to do that. It's to look at their behavior and not listen to what they say. I mean, sure, write down their comments is actually to look at what they do and how they behave while they're using the website. Are they clicking on what they expect them to click on? Are they getting stuck at points? How long are they taking to move through a particular page? I thought that was particularly interesting because a lot of people might ask their customers uh, in focus groups, well, what do you think of the website? What should we improve about the website? What should we improve about our product? And those sort of questions. And what he was saying is you, if you've got a group, you tend to get groupthink. 
So if one person who is opinionated is strong and confident and says something, everyone else might agree, just agree with that because it's the easiest thing to do. Mm. Or if it's just someone on their own, they feel they might want to say something, but just to say something, but it's not actually what happened at the time. Mm. So if, if at all possible, it's better to watch what people do and how they behave when they're interacting with a product or website um, and, and make, uh, not assumptions, but you know, make hypothesis on how you can improve your product or service from that. So I always think for UX and, and well, and user testing and things, for our clients, it's just out of the ball. You know, it's not a budget that people would have, is it? I always think that's, that's for big companies. Mm. Uh, I wonder whether there will ever be anything that's, um, you know, for smaller companies and whether smaller companies all think it's worth the money, you know, worthwhile and worth the money. I guess that's where, that's where our expertise comes in with just doing, you know, doing things that we know is a sort of standard thing people will understand, you know, on, online. There's a very, you know, a couple of sort of hard and fast rules you might have on a typical website where you have things in certain places uh, or certain phrases to you know, enable people to, to do things. Um, but yes, for for bigger businesses, the user testing, you know, can make a massive amount of difference to their mm. bottom line, can't it? Yeah. Um, uh, and so, you know, huge, huge sums of money go into checking prototypes and ideas and flows for like, I don't know, like um, booking, uh, you know, f- booking flights and things, things where it's constantly being used and, you know, millions of pounds are at stake. <laughs> Then, then that's absolutely worth doing, yes. Well, the slightest yeah. difference can make a massive change. That's right. A small change might get a small percentage of people to um, click on something, and that could be a big difference for a, for a large company. Mm. Um, so I think if you do... Uh, one of the things he said was quite interesting is um, if you want to do user testing, and I think if you have a product or a particular website um, and you just want to improve and make that easier, actually like a client we are working with who's doing utility comparisons... Mm. Um, I think this this could work for him is just to go and find a coffee shop in a busy area and just speak to people and say hey can I can I buy your coffee and uh, not being too weird about it but hey can I buy your coffee five minutes can I just sit in front of the computer and just ask you to do something so can can you can you sign up for this or can you click can you find this bit of information and in doing so you can just just observe what they do and and, and find out like that and so you can get a, a reasonable idea about what the general public might do when they come across your website if, if that's you know who you're targeting i thought that's quite an interesting idea and i mm. like coffee so it could uh, could double up that way um mm. so yeah that was con award from ux much um i'm actually gonna have a little break and we'll do a podvert we'll see how this works this will be the first one i'm not sure if i'm going to do a dramatic reading them of them or not but let's give it a go so the first one is from at rethink print co so that's rethink printing in hereford and their podvert is Save money on ink and toner and make printing fun again with a hassle-free managed printer from Rethink. So that's uh, this company is who I think can help you, Al. I think you should, you should give them a tweet and ask. So this one or this one, this printer or this one. Um, <laughs> I shall do that. <laughs> so thank you, Rethink Printing, for tweeting that in. That's your podvert. Um, moving on, we have Guy Armitage from a company called Zealous. I think that's right. And uh, he was talking a lot about AI and it was a, I think he had a really good presentation. It was incredibly short, which I liked. It went through very quickly. Um, and there was so, it was so short that we had a lot of time afterwards for questions, which was better. I think we got to dig into a lot of the interesting um, aspects of AI and what he thinks about it. But he's basically a, an artificial intelligence researcher. 
And one of the things he was talking about is how not to be replaced by artificial intelligence. As the world marches on and computers become more powerful and uh, these neural, artificial neural networks develop and we actually have um, computers that, that do start to do things without humans, um, how do we still keep our jobs or move to jobs that is more, are more difficult for computers to do? And uh, here are a couple of things he, he says. Um, understanding over remembering. Computers are very good at knowledge. They can store lots of stuff and recall information quite quickly. But understanding that information and how information relates is much more of a human trait. Humans are very good at pattern matching. Um, so that's something we should, if we're looking at jobs, that's a, going to something where you have to understand information rather than just recalling it is better. Um, cognitive over manual. So anything that requires our brains and thinking about things rather than actually doing something manually is better because robots can be made to automate things in the, um, you know, a lot of processes have been automated in um, physical reality. Whereas actually, if you need to think about something, that's a bit harder for artificial intelligence to take over. Uh, another couple here, agility over routine. So anything that happens regularly is ripe for being taken over by artificial intelligence or at least just a, a good robot or, or any sort of process. If it happens all the time, it's something that can probably be automated. Whereas if you need to hop between lots of different things and you need to change how you're working quite regularly, agility, then that's more suited to humans. Uh, for the moment, eventually robots might take over the world, but for now we're these are things that might keep us safe. And the other is storytelling over information. So a bit like understanding over remembering. Just having information and being able to tell you what the weather is like or what stocks are or when your favourite programme is coming up, that's all something that artificial intelligence can do very well and it can do it now. However, when you're putting together a story that will delight people um, or a song or anything creative like that, that is much more difficult for artificial intelligence to do now. Eventually, the time will come when um, robots will be able to tell us stories, but for now, I think we're safe. So it was quite interesting to go through these things. It was a bit of fun just to look ahead and see how eventually we might get replaced and how we can prolong that as long as possible. What do you think to that, Al? Well, I'm a massive advocate of people over machines, generally, even though I work in you know, <laughs> the industry that I work in. It's ironic that we're sort of trying to find our place in, you know, against machines when we've invented them. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like these have come from somewhere else and we have to sort of find a place. We're doing it. So in a strange way, strange way, that is our own agility and our own understanding and our own way of thinking to create these things, to not to replace us, to try and replace the menial tasks, I suppose. Yeah. Nobody likes menial tasks, really. Um, so, but where do you stop? You know, and everyone, and again, because it's human nature, everyone wants to be better than the other robot. And so the evolution of robotics, as you say, will try and replace us in terms of our intelligence and capabilities and uh, where's the end point in that mm -hmm. and why <laughs> and should, should there be an end point initially limit it and say no actually we cannot have computer intelligence to go too far to actually do too much yeah i mean think of uh, films that have a you know, futuristic robotic uh storyline to them are any of them positive mm. no they're all uh quite negative and like very doom and gloom um, or they're very, very far ahead and you know, somehow we can create, you know, spaceships tra capable of like light speed travel. Um, there's none really that are kind of 
it's fine. You know, the robots are there and it's just normal. And, uh, you know, there's always something that goes wrong with one or there's some ma massive issue. And they're, they're, you know, they're thought provoking. Um, so I personally like to see a film where it's all fine. The robots are there, but actually the story is something else. You know, they just get along, they just get on with it. But um, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big advocate of um, keeping the human nature in things. So I definitely agree with this. Uh, I saw a thing recently uh, with this robot that was made that um, it was kind of like a horse. To, uh, it was on wheels, but it was kind of like on, on two wheels and it could move around at speed and it's quite big. It could jump, it could carry stuff. Uh, it's quite scary looking. It was like a horse on its hind legs, but would move around. I mean, it's pretty, pretty weird. I can't remember who made it, but this is video and it's quite new. And I was thinking, crikey, you know, we're like at this, this dawn of, of, of these machines and you mm. just can't help but see terminator in this in these yeah. things <laughs> i mean you can't i mean you think this is this is terminator being you know made before our very eyes and we're kind of like yeah we want more of it and like you see on the um telly like um you know the uh amazon sort of central hub thing you know like you ask questions to and it just sort yeah, of you know comes like, like echo is that what it's called yeah and it sort of runs your life for you and you think crikey yeah where's that gonna go you know and, uh, is it to make us more happy? I don't. I don't think it will eventually make the human race happier. To have less emotion and less art and less mistakes. I mean, sometimes mistakes are are good. You know, machines don't tend to make mistakes. Yeah, I guess it. What it, it depends what machines will be taking over. I mean, we use an accounts package called Zero, and one of the benefits I like about Zero is that you can put in repeating invoices. So each month. The invoices go out and I don't have to think about them because that that is a I mean to do that myself I'd be sending out oh god knows how many invoices like 50 60 a month uh, I don't want to be doing that because it's something that happens all the time and sure I could build in um, a bit of repetition into my month and uh, you know the first of the month I can sit down and uh, get a cup of tea and, and go through all the invoices but that's something which is ideally suited to automation and doesn't mm. even need artificial intelligence but there's no reason you can't take that step further a little bit further and a little bit further and then maybe the uh, accounts package could start just answering a few basic questions from people and they say oh can you just update they send an email in say oh could you update the email address for this sure well not, no problem that's just pattern matching we can recognize uh, an email address and we can put it into the right slot so that I, I think it's it's not a case that we will necessarily see exactly where it goes um, it's a bit like uh, what the, what's the phrase boiling the frog, which sounds horrible. But if you mm. if you if we're effectively boiling ourselves very slowly in in, in artificial intelligence, all of this, mm. and so we won't really notice it until it's here. I mean, look now. I mean, we we're we're doing video chat uh, right yes. at the moment. Um, that's something I, I remember from Aliens back in the day when it wow. was like, oh, that's a really cool thing. I Early, mean, how, how difficult no, is that? Earlier than that, oh, um, yeah. Arthur C. Clarke, two thousand one yes, Space right. Odyssey. I can't remember the year that was written. He had yes. what is essentially a, a Skype call yep. with his daughter. He was on the moon, I think, and um, uh, with his daughter, you know, back yep. at home. And it's, it is Skype. Yeah. And th that's was. I mean, the whole idea is just completely crazy. But there are these visionaries in in uh, literature and, and art and things who are, um, who can you know who do kind of predict what's going to happen. So I do think that a lot of these filmmakers and these films probably are quite right in what's going to happen. You know, Blade Runner, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it's predicting. It, it's logically looking ahead, at, taking it step by step and saying, well, looking at where we're heading, this is where it could be. Um, oh, that's a prediction, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, at, okay. at the time, at the time that um, 2001 A Space Odyssey was written, man hadn't even gone to the moon. Yeah. And yet you're thinking far ahead, you're thinking, yeah, we could do video calling. We take yes. it for granted. It's just there. It's not something we noticed it happening, generally. It just is there. No. And it, it's, yeah. it's available to anyone for free. At the science fair that I went to recently with a sleep uh, seminar, um, there was also, it was for kids, so there was a chance to kind of play with little Arduino robots. Mm-hmm. And my youngest, who's four, I might add, was really interested in the robots. They're quite basic, so they're little, like, kind of like two-wheeled sort of, little, like a sort of robot wars, but a very small, innocent version of them. <laughs> um, and she just loved them. And, uh, and uh, she wanted to try a hand at doing some of the programming, which she actually managed to do, which is incredible. I mean, nothing too extraordinary, but she was amazed by it all. But what I uh, took away from it, which is quite interesting, is uh, when she put the robot on the ground to kind of, it was like a sensor robot, so it didn't hit the walls and stuff. Yeah. She was kind of caring for it, so she was, she wanted, she didn't want it to get hurt. So she was making, if she was trying to put a hand in front of it, so it wouldn't hit a wall and stuff. And she was just kind of ranging it, so it didn't, didn't get injured. And mm. and I found that quite interesting. Yeah, and maybe a positive thing for robots is that pe- you know people can interact with them with a way that isn't just machine-like. You may remember there's a YouTube video from a science, is it DARPA? And they had um, what looks like a dog, a robot dog, but it doesn't have a head. Do you remember that one? And it bas- so. Basically, uh, I, I can't remember what it's called. Perhaps if you search on YouTube for DARPA dog, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll find the link for it. Um, and basically, it's a military robot that which is used, it can be used for carrying things or reconnaissance. Oh, and I know the one. Yes. And, and they're, they're testing... Ah. Yes. They're, they're testing yeah. it, and basically they're showing off its ability to yeah. stabilize. Yes, and it yes. walks along, and someone kicks it really yeah. hard, and you they, can see it yeah. scrabbling on the ice, yeah. and then yes. gets its footing again. I know. These are the same people who made that other thing I was talking about earlier. This is their next thing. Right. Um, and I think... But when you see everyone who sees that goes <gasps> because you feel poor yeah. and you feel poor thing and it doesn't it doesn't feel it because it's got because, no sensors for that because it has animal like qualities and our, yes. our brain sort of says because oh, it, it kind of scrabbles like a dog would if you kicked a dog yeah. sideways I know it's exactly what that would it's, <laughs> yes it's quite it's if anyone it, hasn't seen that I'll, I'll put the link in the in the show notes because it's well worth well worth watching what, when I watch it I was I, I'm always, it, the, the thing in my head is it doesn't go it doesn't attack back yeah. <laughs> Because it's constantly getting attacked, it just stabilizes. And, oh, that's fine. That's normal, you know. Whereas in an animal world, that you know, it would attack back. And yet, at the time, <laughs> yet exactly. That's the worry, isn't it? Eventually, it'll uh, aim its uh, missiles and uh, machine guns at you. And uh, yeah, I don't want to so, go there. It's a worry. <laughs> I'll, put, I'll put the link in because it's very interesting. We've, so we've gone well for websites, but I love yeah. the sort of going from t- Terminator to uh, Zero. I love that sort of link there. That was well, great. Well, the, the link, <laughs> is, the link with artificial intelligence and websites um, is that actually, if you, if you take how we're using um, devices uh, forward, uh, um, did we speak with Jonathan about this? Uh, Jonathan Pollinger, is that ultimately we might just be talking with our um, with the web by voice or text. We're not necessarily going to websites. We're just conversing with an intermediary who provides that information. That could be Siri or the Echo, Echo or whatever, yeah. Alexa. Um, so, so from that point of view, artificial intelligence could be the, the way that we actually do find information. We're not typing anymore. Um, so I think that's, that's where it leads, really. Um, moving on, last one. So mm. I'm going to quickly run through a few things here, and this is—I'm uh, going to mispronounce his name, but I think it's Jian Men Krugelhanna, the creative director at Head. 
And yeah, he had a very long presentation. Bit too long, I think, Gion Men. Uh, my bum was starting to get a little bit numb, but it's really good. And basically a few things I'm gonna run down here. Less strategy, more doing. I definitely advocate that in our coaching sessions. I'm all up for a bit of thinking ahead about what we want to do. But at the end of the day, let's just do something and move forward. And each month, let's looking at uh, analyzing what we've done and do something a bit better or, or change something and do something else. Rather than thinking ahead for the next 12 months, three years, putting a really tight plan together and then executing on it, even if it doesn't work very well. And I think that's how they've changed how they work internally, that they're very much, let's try something, try lots of things and take the best ones that work and then try again and keep moving forward like that. Yeah, that's what frustrates me on Dragon's Den is they have these two and three year projection plans mm. where they say how much money their company's going to make. And, and um, I always find that, I just find it unrealistic. I don't know why they use that tool. Whereas I think this approach, an iterative kind of making it better, looking at what you've done last month, moving the, the goalposts, an agile kind of approach, I guess. Yeah. For me, that's much more realistic. So, uh, yeah. Yes, you make mistakes, but you're going to make mistakes the other way. And by doing it that way, you might compound on those mistakes continually and make it worse. Whereas if you make lots of little mistakes, you can correct them and move on and keep doing that. Um, so there's also a couple of points here about um, that he went through, which is about brand. Um, I'm going to list them. So people buy products to build their identity. They don't mm. buy them just because they like the product it's because it builds them it makes them feel like who they are or they mm -hmm. show off to other people it's it's part mm. of what they want massive. to be um, clothes cars all of those sort of things yeah, exactly. are a massive this is what i'm about isn't it exactly yes it is there are there, some products are utility but that's that maybe like with a knife i mean i didn't know i don't know what the brand is of the knife i've never recognized it before so i was i was going a bit more on I'm trusting it's a bit more expensive, it's going to be a bit better. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of that to it, but um, it really was that I wanted a nice knife because that's, you know, I want a nice knife because um, I think that's better. Now, what's, the, um, uh, what's that old film when he goes, that's not a knife, this is a knife. Sorry for Crocodile that. Dundee. Crocodile Dundee, that's mm. um, He did it better than that. He, uh, yeah, much better. <laughs> um, so number two here, people are not focused on product, but rather the meaning of the product. Uh, number three, people want to belong to a tribe. Again, that goes back to number one, to build our identity. It's to belong to something, Wh whether you're into computers, uh, football, art, or a particular artist, a book, a film, whatever it is, you're, you are consuming that, buying that, watching that to build your identity, to make it stronger. Number four, tribes are connected through technology. So basically saying, if you want to reach these people, you can reach them through technology because often that's what brings people together. Maybe it's uh, Twitter or uh, just a, a community forum, you know, whatever they use or Slack channels, even whatever they use to communicate, technology can help do that. Number five, which I believe in a lot, people hate being sold to, but they love to buy. So if someone already wants something and you can help them buy that, then I think that's the way to sell not to force something upon someone. It's just to help them come to the decision that they want to spend £60 on a knife. <laughs> um, yeah. And then a final thought he left here, and I've not watched this video again, but I should do. It's pretty good. Um, and it's by Casey, who's a YouTuber. I assume he's well-known. Um, I think he's very well-known, actually, in the YouTuber world. And he's, his motto is, do what you can't. 
Now, I think there's some things that are actually probably physically impossible um, at the moment, mm. but, but generally I get where he's going. If you don't think you can do it, give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? Fail miserably and get depressed about it. Yeah, <laughs> but then you can bounce back and do it again. Um, okay. So that was my day at WXG. There were a few more speakers, but I just picked out the, uh, the few for brevity. I might add in the others to my blog post. Al, I think we're running out of time. Yes. We, we were yeah. going to talk about SSL and securing a website on SSL, but I think there's a lot there. Mm. So we're going to perhaps talk about that next time. Next, I think uh, next time episode. would be good. That's a good timing, yeah. yeah. Excellent. So let's read out the final podvert. And this is from at Astute Graphics on Twitter. Um, their podvert is learn nine ways to reduce file size in Illustrator. And they've got a link here, which I'm going to attempt to read out but I suggest everyone look at our show notes and click on the link there. It's basically astutegraphics.com forward slash blog forward slash nine hyphen ways hyphen minimize hyphen file size Adobe hyphen <laughs> illustrator. Or just go to their website astutegraphics.com. I think they've got a search icon on there and type in nine ways to reduce file size. And it's the top hit. Um, I'm sure it's near the top of their blog as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's, it's, I think it's relating to a new product they've got, which uh, um, is like an, it automatic automatically makes file sizes in Adobe Illustrator smaller by removing cruft and metadata and that sort of stuff. Those guys are good, aren't they? There, they're always doing <sighs> yeah. something innovative. I know it was, they're actually uh, yeah doing some nice stuff at the moment. They've got lots of cool things. Um, right, thank you very much, Al. Um, we can find you online on Twitter at Inventive Al. I'm at Ben Kinnaird, and if you want to get your free Be Sociable book, you can go to our website, ratherinventive.com, scroll down to the bottom of pretty much any page, and tap in your email address at the bottom and hit subscribe, and you'll get the book sent to you within a few minutes. Um, or, if you want to pay for it, you can just search for Be Sociable book online, and you'll find it on iTunes there and buy it. Either way, I'm happy. Just go and do something. Nice to speak to you, Al. And you. Speak to you later. See you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye.